In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Because we view politics so much as a popularity contest, we forget that there's actually a skill in governing. And if you know how to do it, you can be good at it, whatever party you come from. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. As you may have heard, there was an election recently. Democrats, contrary to what a lot of pundits said when they published their election columns too early, they did pretty damn well. But why? What does it all mean? Molly Ball is Time's national correspondent, and for my money, one of the smartest reporters on and observers of American politics around. She's been on the show before. I always love talking to her about this stuff. And so I asked her back to talk through the election and its aftermath. But, but more than that, I want to talk with her about the state of the two parties. What does Paul Ryan's failed speakership mean for the Republicans? What does the, the building anti-system frustration of the Democrats mean for the Democratic Party? Um, this was a, a very useful conversation for me. It picked up on a lot of the themes that I'm just still trying to work out and work my way through. I hope it's useful for you. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Molly Ball. Molly Ball, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. So how are you feeling post-election? I am starting to feel rested. Uh, I feel like I have recovered. However, it seems like the election has not yet recovered. It's still going on. Uh, we're still counting. We're still recounting. So uh, any verdict that we render here is going to be a little bit preliminary. I think one of the crazy things about election night was how much the beginning of the night had this sort of East Coast reporting bias where what happened in Florida or what appeared to have happened in Florida inflected everything for like three hours and then everybody's like, oh, yeah, there's like a whole rest of the country. And then it turned out that you were getting more or less the, the outcome people had expected. But, but it was a real reminder that you do not know what is happening early on election night. Yeah, a little bit of humility there is always good. And I'm a Westerner, so of course I would say that we out West always have a better finger on the pulse of America than the uh, East Coast tends to have. Uh, but I think there is some truth to that if you look at things like uh, population growth patterns. But, you know, there was that bellwether district in Kentucky that went to the Republicans, a Republican-leaning seat, but that the Democrats didn't take. And then you had the Florida results and Missouri and Indiana started to come in. And I had Democrats texting me in full bedwetting panic mode saying, oh, my God, this is 2016 all over again. I'm having PTSD. So uh, a good reminder that uh, the election isn't over till it's over. Yeah. Also, I, I think the live results, the the five thirty eight, and and then the the late needle, the live result prediction platforms. I'm not sure are that good, except for jacking up people's anxiety while the thing is happening. But it really seems to me that they create these weird emotional swings on these evenings that, that are not hugely healthy for the polity. Well, you know, it's kind of hypocritical on the part of us in the audience for these things because we are the ones who've created the demand for the needle, right? Because we want to know right away and that information exists. So to satisfy that demand, there's a competition between media outlets to provide that information as soon as possible. Uh, but then we are in the audience turn around and get mad when 
then, uh, you know, inevitably the information is not flowing in a perfectly even and predictable way as it will do on such short notice. I tried to remind myself that, you know, back when this country was founded, there were probably weeks, if not months that went by when, well, they waited for, I don't know if there were like horse-drawn carriages bringing the ballots or if they were sending electors or what, but we know a lot of things a lot faster than we ever have. And that just tends to highlight the imperfections of that preliminary information. I need to be protected from my own bad emotional impulses by paternalistic media. So I'm, I'm not I'm not taking any responsibility. So, so give me your big picture on it. What, what did you think? How do you read the midterm outcome? Well, it was a good night for the Democrats, number one. But I do think that it underscored the I don't realignment might be too strong a word, but a lot of the trends that we saw emerge or continue in 2016 intensified rural areas, intensely loyal to the president. You know, I think we knew going in that the dynamic that favored the Democrats was what we've seen in all of the special elections in the Virginia election last year, a very enthused and motivated and galvanized Democratic base and a relatively disheartened Republican base. And Republicans saw that too, and they figured, uh, and the president certainly figured, we are not going to ungalvanize the Democrats. So let's just try to get as much of our base up to match their base as possible. And that was the reasoning behind that. That plus apparently I think the president's emotional needs uh, was the reasoning behind him doing this barnstorming tour of so many late rallies, going to so many of these red districts. And it appears to have worked. You look at a place like Wisconsin, for example, the week before the election, I believe the president went to Wausau in the central part of the state. The Democrats managed to defeat Scott Walker, a long-held uh, liberal dream there in his bid for a third term, uh, and they will take the governorship. Uh, and Tammy Baldwin was easily reelected to the Senate, as other Midwestern Democrats were. Uh, but at the same time, I don't believe the Democrats made any gains in the Wisconsin legislature, and they may even have lost a seat because of that uh, high turnout in the rural areas. So, you know, most districts, including Republican districts, swung more Democratic in 2018 than they'd been in 2016. The Republican gains in the House now looking at like between 35 and 40. That's a big number. But there were a lot of Senate races that the polling had showed to be more competitive than they ended up being. So Claire McCaskill in Missouri, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, they both beat Hillary Clinton's margins in those states, uh, but they both lost those Senate races as Republicans in those states were motivated to come out and vote almost at the levels that the Democrats were. The thing that it seemed to underscore to me was that we're just existing in a period where elections work off of a logic of polarization. And they're first and foremost about what kind of state or district you're in. And then they're second about the level of mobilization among the two sides. It's like a very straightforward formula, but it doesn't seem to really be a formula anymore that has anything to do with persuasion. You do a lot more reporting among campaign aides and, and strategists than I do, but I've talked to a couple of them in the past couple of years who've told me that they feel their job used to be about persuading people and now it's about mobilizing people. And I wonder how much the Trump strategy and just the turnout we've seen reflects that, that, you know, now, you know, you want to win an election, just like, if you've got favorable geography, then what you need to do is mobilize. And like, that's it. Like, that is how politics works now. Well, it is true that politics now, um, and probably always has been about getting more votes than the other side. 
And I'm teasing a little bit, but I think you could make the opposite case, in fact, because, number one, we are seeing swings among voters. We are seeing, uh, you know, Trump has lost a lot of ground since he was elected in terms of his approval rating. I believe it was Dave Wasserman of the Cook Report pointed out every House district that supported Trump by less than five points was taken by a Democrat in this midterm. So those are districts that are swinging. And some of it is just that some people are voting and others aren't. But some of it is that people are moving, particularly my demographic, college-educated white suburban women. That's a real phenomenon. That's something you certainly see anecdotally when you report on these places when you report on something like the Alabama Senate election uh, or Georgia 6 from the past year. And that is what has Republicans so nervous because you have the president executing seemingly successful base strategy, but at the same time alienating those potentially persuadable voters, alienating longtime Republican demographics in the suburbs, in suburbs like where I grew up outside of Denver, the suburbs of Chicago, the suburbs of Richmond, all over the country. And about 50% of votes in America come from suburban areas, much more than come from the urban and rural areas that are increasingly polarized to an extreme degree. So those suburban areas, Republicans feel like, in a way, the president sacrificed the House to save the Senate. But in doing so, especially with that closing message that was so racial and so bombastic and focused on immigration, that is not going to help them win back those kinds of areas. This was something that was really striking to me about the Democratic campaign, which is the House campaign in particular seemed like it existed in a world where Jeb Bush had won the presidency, that it was a campaign on pre-existing conditions and on jobs. It was a very normal campaign that, you know, if you looked at the ads for that, it felt so different than what you were seeing in the media day to day. It felt so different than what politics feels like on Twitter. And I wonder a little bit about that. I wonder about the lesson Democrats seem to have first settled on and then successfully executed on that the way to beat Trump was to actually run a normal Democrat-Republican election against him and let just him be Trump, but don't let him make you anti-Trump, right? Like you stay the thing you already were. Do you think that's a fair way to think about that? And, and was that a surprise to you that the Democratic campaign, it wasn't more Russia and like erratic commander in chief and 3 a.m. calls and that whole thing? I was a little bit surprised by that. And the Democrats decided early on, uh, in part based on 2016, that an anti-Trump message was not a winner for them, despite the fact that the president's unpopular, including in a lot of these districts where they had to win. That What they found in their research, I guess, was that the messaging that moved voters needed to be more substantive. I think there was also a feeling that, you know, the closing message of Hillary Clinton's campaign was Trump is so offensive, vote for my vision of America. And that didn't move people sufficiently to elect her. And it meant that her message, which she did have one, her message on the economy, her message on jobs, her message on health care, didn't have a chance to break through because the conversation was so focused in part thanks to her choices on Trump and his rhetoric. So the Democrats, I think, really did break through with the health care message. Of course, it helped that there was this groundswell 
of democratic activism, and a lot of that revolved around health care. It helped that the uh, Republicans' numerous failed attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act and other actions to undermine it activated a lot of voters who are concerned about that issue. Healthcare was the number one issue of the people who were voting. So you have to think that was a good choice on the part of the Democrats to campaign on the issue that people were most concerned about. But I have to say what surprised me more than that pivot on the part of the Democrats was that more Republicans didn't take a softer line on Trump. You would think there would be a big opening for Republican candidates to distance themselves because so many voters see President Trump as somewhat distinct from the Republican Party, right? He has always been seen as by voters, I think, as a, as a sort of almost an independent candidate. And that w- would have allowed a lot of Republicans to say, hey, you might not like Trump. I don't always like him, but here's what I have to offer as a Republican. And, you know, the last race that I reported on, I went out to Wisconsin to see Tammy Baldwin and her Republican challenger, Leah Vukmir. And this was the case in numerous statewide contests, Pennsylvania, Michigan, places where you know, Trump had broken through the Democrats' blue wall, I think also to some extent in Florida, where we still don't know the outcome. These Republican candidates went all in on Trump. They didn't try to distance themselves. They didn't try to do that little tap dance away from this unpopular president. And uh, I don't know if that was a matter of campaign strategy because they figured they had to get their base out and they weren't going to do it if they were lukewarm on Trump, who is so galvanizing for Republicans as well, or if they were just afraid that he might tweet at them or call them out the way he did the day after the election with a lot of the House Republicans who did try to distance themselves unsuccessfully. But that was an odd choice to me. I would not have predicted that. And going back to the Democrats, what you saw someone like a Tammy Baldwin doing, here's someone who, before she became a senator, was a liberal congresswoman from Madison, but she has really fashioned herself as a statewide politician into a senator who pays very close attention to the needs of the entire state, including rural areas, dairy farms, opioids, those kinds of issues she gets very closely engaged with. And what I feel like you saw Democrats like Tammy Baldwin doing was trying to take a page from some of Trump's populism without the racial provocation, if you believe that Trump's appeal was sort of a combination of those two things. And so you have Democratic candidates like Tammy Baldwin talking in bipartisan terms that probably code as moderate to voters, talking about reaching across the aisle, talking about working with the president if need be. At the same time, they have embraced things like Medicare for all. And the other, I think, story of this election was Republicans tried to make Medicare for all a dirty word uh, and convince voters that socialized medicine was going to take away their health care. And voters didn't believe that Democrats wanted to take away their health care. That to me is a really interesting piece of it, in part because I don't know whether the way to think about it is that Democrats took a page from Trump's populism and just X'd out the racism, or that Trump had initially taken a page from Democratic populism and just X'd out the embrace of diversity. And there was always this way in which the, the, the two sides were, were stealing a bit from each other. I mean, Trump, you, I think you and I both read Identity Crisis and, you know, they find that Trump does not do much better among Republicans worried that, you know, the government is too corrupt or that they're not getting listened to, but really does do better among populist Republicans, Republicans who believe in Social Security and Medicare. It seems to me that what has been exposed here is that Trump really did have a winning political theory in 2016. And the worst thing that happened to him is that Paul Ryan and the Republican Congress 
won the internal fight for the actual policy agenda. That like he kept control of the cultural agenda and the cultural war and the media agenda. And congressional Republicans kept control of the legislative agenda and the tax agenda and the healthcare agenda. And so now Trump is running on a culture war set of issues that mobilize Democrats but also mobilize Republicans, but he's sort of losing control of the economic populism that set him apart last time. I'm not even 100 percent sure if he knows that that has happened to him, but it seems to me to be the thing that really got demonstrated in this campaign. And you saw those states that look like the ones that maybe went to Trump for populist reasons, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, flipping back towards Democrats. Do you think that's like a, a, like a like a deep thing that's changed or that's just about not having Trump himself on the ballot? I have no idea. <laughs> I would point out, though, I would add I would add a couple data points to that. Right. You had three very red states vote for Medicaid expansion and another two red states vote to increase the minimum wage. So Democrats, I think, would say these are instances where even conservative voters are voting for a more liberal economic agenda. The problem then is if the culture war supersedes that economic agenda, those voters are never going to vote for Democrats, even if they like them on some issues. I do think there was a segment of the electorate that wanted that combination of social conservatism and economic liberalism, and that previously really no candidate was speaking to that before Trump was a nominee. But those people then still don't really have anyone speaking for them. And I don't think Democrats are in a position to take back those red states where people are voting for some of those initiatives. I don't know. The answer is I don't know on your big question. But I do think that as for whether Democrats were advocating economic populism before and it was Trump that stole it, Medicare for all is a lot further than any Democrat was willing to go, I think, four years ago in a contested Senate race. So the center of gravity in the party has shifted to the left, even if some of the more liberal candidates have not been victorious. So I think you can be Tammy Baldwin and be seen as sort of moderate, but still be for Medicare for all. That's different than, I think, the Democratic moderates of yesteryear who were conservative largely on economics, right? They were the sort of Bloomberg Democrats, I guess, who don't want to regulate the banks and don't want to spend a lot of government money, but they are for, you know, gay marriage and other liberal social issues. So I, I do think that's a change in the way the Democratic Party uh, sees their message. That's interesting. I want to think about that for a minute because it it strikes me as two ways. One, on, on the one hand, I think moderate Democrats, even of just a couple of years ago, I think we're still pretty culturally conservative, you know your Bill Clintons and Sister Solja or, you know, even Barack Obama, right, being very intentional about running without, you know, in opposition to gay marriage. Um, you know, it was for civil unions, but but he still had to evolve on, on gay marriage. I think there was a lot more concern in the Democratic Party about cultural issues for a long time. But But by the same token, something you're saying sounds really right to me, which is that it feels like for all kinds of different reasons, I think possibly some of them the diversifying of America, some of them Donald Trump, some of the, the way Twitter and the media sort of highlight identity issues. It feels like the locus of conflict in politics has moved towards these culture and identity issues. And that's created space as people organize around that for – people to have a broader range of economic and tax and healthcare and so on positions 
without those positions necessarily tying them to being very liberal or very conservative, that really like where you fall on the left-right spectrum seems to be increasingly based on how you engage in the culture war. And there is a lot of heterodoxness uh, allowed so long as you're lining up on the side you're supposed to line up on some of those some of those core conflicts that we have now. Does that feel right to you? That all feels right. I want to take one more step back, though, because we've also talked in the past about ideology versus identity as a driver of people's politics. And so you're talking about ideology. You're talking about what people believe and, and where that leads them to fall on the partisan spectrum. But I it is, as you alluded to, also about identity and and about who people see as speaking for people like them. And one of the things that you saw the Democratic Party do in this election was become far more representative of its constituencies, uh, particularly with the number of women who were nominated and won, but also, you know, the first Native Americans and Muslim Americans and the two first Latinas from Texas, unbelievably enough, a, a, a lot of firsts being scored because I think for a long time the rap on the Democratic Party is that a bunch of old white men were telling minority communities that they represented them. And now you've seen a new generation start to take over that is more actually representative, uh, someone like in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose district had been pretty out of sync with Joe Crowley for a long time in terms of you know him being the sort of older working class white guy. So I'm not sure where I'm going with all of this, but I guess I guess what I'm I guess what we're both saying. I feel that way is, about politics in general lately. That's good. <laughs> I think radical uncertainty is better than uh, blustery, overconfident pronouncements. But I think what we're both trying to say is that there is an interplay of ideology and identity in ways that we wouldn't necessarily have foreseen a few years ago. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. One of the things that I think is a question for me coming out of the election is Democrats ran this much more normal policy-oriented campaign and seemed to really have profited off of it. I was really struck by the exit polls showing the Mueller investigation is unpopular, even among people voting in the 2018 election, which is a pretty anti-Trump group. 54 percent felt the Mueller investigation was primarily politically motivated. A majority felt Trump's immigration policies were about right or not yet tough enough, right? A, a minority thought they were too tough. Like the molten core of Trumpism seemed to poll okay. But then you got to healthcare, you got to economy, you got to all these other things and, and, and Trump went down through the floor. Can Democrats actually govern that way? Do they have the capacity when the media, uh, when the agenda is not being set by their paid ads, but by what breaks through in the media sphere and sort of what they're really fighting about Trump with? Do you think they're going to be able to draw a straight line from the way they ran to the way 
they'll govern? Or is a campaign that was fundamentally about healthcare and the economy going to give way to a House majority that is basically investigating and getting into fights over impeachment and Russia and, you know, more of this sort of Trump activation stuff that sort of he clearly seems to be spoiling for a fight on. But Democrats clearly made, at least in the election, like a strategic calculated choice that that wasn't their strongest ground. Yes, they didn't turn their back on those things necessarily. It just wasn't the thing that they foregrounded, right? Look, the Democrats can't govern because they don't have the Congress. They only have the House. So they can pass things potentially, but those things are probably not going to be signed into law unless they can find areas of agreement with the Republicans, which certainly didn't happen the last time we had a divided Congress. So that means that the things they are able to do and actually execute, which is accountability and being a check on Trump and investigating and potentially impeachment, those are the things that they're going to be more successful at because they have the power to do that with only one house. So this impeachment thing is really interesting to me because on the one hand, you know, Pelosi and others in the Democratic establishment made a big show of being against impeachment and trying to downplay that and not wanting voters to think that that is what was motivating their candidates. But you also had, you know, Republicans made a big deal about like, oh, we're going to run on the fact that Democrats just want to impeach. And then they really didn't. They really dropped that talking point after only about a week or so because it didn't seem to move their voters either, the idea that Republicans needed to be elected to protect Trump from impeachment. And it's interesting to me that, you know, I think we saw in one poll not too long ago, 49 percent of the American public already believes that Trump deserves to be impeached. So this is not some fringe issue. And when I spoke to Leader Pelosi much earlier this year, uh, she didn't shut the door on impeachment. What she said was, I don't believe that what we know now demands impeachment. But she's leaving the door open for what the Mueller report might find. And if there is stuff in there that looks bad for Trump, I think that's going to be a hard train to stop. And then we're in uncharted territory. You did this great profile of Pelosi, um, I, I guess earlier this year. I have no idea what time period we're in anymore. But one thing that has always really marked her leadership style within the Democratic caucus is she's a lot of discipline and she's able to impose a lot of discipline on her members in a way that House Republicans really have not been able to do. But she's had a lot more challenges recently. Um, there's been a lot more dissension uh, about her being speaker. I think she's going to win again, but there might be a challenge. Do you think she's going to be able to impose as much discipline or is part of her being a more controversial leader for the Democrats that she's going to have to give up more control than she has in the past? I ended up concluding pretty strongly from my research into her that Nancy Pelosi is very good at her job. If you consider the job to be passing legislation through the House of Representatives with a Democratic majority. And that is not a job that Republican speakers have been good at, right, as you noted. So that's no small thing. She is not necessarily very good at politics. Yes, they won the House this year. There have obviously been a couple of midterms and then a presidential election that did not go very well for the Democrats. And the Democratic challenges to her, whether it's, you know, Tim Ryan running against her for leader last time or the Democrats who have voiced opposition to Pelosi, it has mostly been political. 
they're not out there saying, I don't think she has what it takes to negotiate with Trump and the Republicans and count votes in the House and get legislation through. They're saying people don't like her and it's making my life difficult with my voting constituents because they associate me with her. So the fact that most people expect that this is her sort of swan song as speaker and that she's not going to continue past 2020, there hasn't been a challenge announced to her yet. The leader vote among the Democratic caucus, which is a secret ballot vote that precedes the official speaker vote on the floor, that is going to take place at the end of this month. So if anybody wants to mount a real as opposed to cosmetic challenge to her, they needed to start counting votes yesterday. So I think there's a feeling that because of this win, This is owed to her, and there is a big part of the caucus that's new. A lot of Democrats who have never been in the majority uh, from the last couple of elections, and then this new crop that is sort of emboldened by this wave in the midterms. So she knows that. She knows them all. She Either she helped them get elected, she gave them enormous amounts of money to campaigns around the country and logistical support, fundraising, and so on. And when she doesn't have that connection to someone, she works really hard to bring them into the fold. You know, the day after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her primary, Nancy Pelosi was on the phone with her, sort of uh, stroking her ego and telling her how welcome she was going to be in the House. So it's hard to see Nancy Pelosi being defeated for speaker. But it also, another thing that I think has been underappreciated about her is that even with Republicans in the majority and Trump in the White House, she has been notching wins for the Democrats. She has gotten very favorable spending bills to the point that a lot of conservatives complain about them and the deficit is soaring. But that's because she's gotten all these Democratic priorities funded in the spending bills passed by the Republican Congress and signed by President Trump. So if she was able to negotiate that from the minority, we will have to see what she can get done in the majority. Speaking of the speaker, can we talk about the, I want to say outgoing, but I also kind of want to say skulking out current Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. That seems to me to be one of the most singularly failed speakerships in recent American political history. Failed by the measures that Paul Ryan set for himself, the deficit is and and the debt is larger than when he took office. Um, Failed in terms of the popularity of the legislation he both passed and didn't pass. I mean, to pass tax cuts and have them be that unpopular takes some talent and to have health care reform blow up in your face like that when you control the House and the Senate was really something. And also just to kind of like run for the exit before even the election, when you've just barely been in a couple of years, because he got out, I feel like we're not really talking that much about it, but it really seems like the Paul Ryan experiment was some kind of failed experiment. Well, I think you have to separate. There are two different things going on here, which may be dovetail, but one of them is Paul Ryan's brand of politics and its increasing repudiation and the degree to which the Republican Party that Paul Ryan so cherished of supply-side economics and entitlement reform was just completely overwhelmed or, or transplanted, I guess, like invasion of the body snatcher style by Trumpism and the degree to which Trump gave the Republican Party a personality transplant. Although, as you pointed out before, the GOP Congress is mostly executing a conservative economic agenda rather than some of the more populist things Trump campaigned on, like increasing taxes on hedge fund managers and providing universal health care. And there's one more that I'm – oh, infrastructure. So uh, uh, Infrastructure week. <laughs> live every week like it's infrastructure week. I as, always as do. As a, 
so I don't know. There's a mixed bag there. But then the other part of it is Paul Ryan was afflicted by the same syndrome that afflicted John Boehner, which was just not being good at his job. You know, there's a lot of sympathy generally for these guys because the Republican Party has been so fractious and difficult to govern. But look, you can't have a majority in the House of Representatives without having a pretty big tent. You're going to have a caucus that's coming from lots of different places and lots of different points on the political spectrum if you're going to have enough seats in the House to be in charge of it. And there's a lot that you know, stuff that Nancy Pelosi is good at, counting votes, persuading members, imposing discipline, whether it's through favors or through fear. And neither John Boehner or Paul Ryan was any good at that. And that has less to do with the sort of sociopolitical currents convulsing America. I mean, I suppose you could make an argument that some liberals would say, well, the Republican Party doesn't believe in governing and that's why they're bad at it. But I do think that some of it is just a skill. And because we view politics so much as a popularity contest, we forget that there's actually a skill in governing. Maybe it's a bygone skill, but that is also something you have to know how to do. And if you know how to do it, you can be good at it, whatever party you come from. But I, I do think with Ryan, there is this question for me of what, what in the end did he believe in, if anything? Because, you know, I lived through the great deficit panic of 2010 to 2014 or however we want to mark it. And, you know, I, I saw the arguments at that time that, you know, Paul Ryan's rise, which is really centered in that period, it was just a straight bit of opportunism. And he, like during the George W. Bush years, as soon as he and the Republicans got back in power, they were going to abandon deficits. And I heard Ryan and people, you know, rebut that argument. And then they came in and Paul Ryan eventually became speaker. And it's not just that he passed tax cuts without paying for them, although he did do that, but he also increased spending without paying for it. And in addition to that, he said a lot of things that I think he knew were just completely untrue, you know, like that the tax cuts would probably pay for themselves. And I've been thinking a little bit about, you know, how do you read a, a tenure like his? Because on the one hand, he managed to not do a good job convincing his party of his own ideas, like his own health care plan, which is incredibly, incredibly unpopular within his party. And the one thing he was supposed to be really good at was getting people on board. On the other hand, he was not able to do that thing that he's done in the past, which was, you know, get good centrist press or, or, or whatever it might have been by, you know, making debt arguments because he kind of just abandoned them all. And there's a way in which like the Republican parties, I don't want to say they don't believe in government, but they're kind of bit of governing nihilism seemed to really afflict his speakership because it was present in him. Like Nancy Pelosi really believed in a lot of things and persuades her caucus in part because she's making arguments that are pretty on the level. Paul Ryan, you know, whatever was true about him before or not true about him, I, I can't see into the guy's heart. He got the speakership and what I understood to be Paul Ryanism kind of collapsed except for this kind of lowest common denominator republicanism. And, you know, maybe that's all he thought he could pass. But just the total inability of the Republican Party to come up with a governing agenda that they could even explain to themselves struck me as a situation where people on the left often look at Republicans and say, oh, you know, the, the malleability they have on policy is a real advantage. And I think you saw there the way it was a disadvantage when you're not holding to anything. It becomes really hard to convince each other and yourselves of what kind of sacrifices you should make and of what's actually a good idea. Like there, there really seems to me to be a 
big lesson in the fall of Paul Ryan that is getting a little bit kind of ignored because Trump drowns it out and, and there's a lot of other things going on. But to have that fall apart in the way it did even internally inside the Republican Party that quickly and for Ryan himself to just leave, like it seems to me that we're seeing something in the Republican Party there that is like a more profoundly dysfunctional dynamic than even I had understood it to be before. Well, look, if Paul Ryan didn't believe in anything – the things he believed wouldn't be so unpopular, right? I mean, if this were someone who actually had no ideology himself, why wouldn't he just go and be for a bunch of things that people actually like? Instead, he he continued to espouse things like particularly entitlement reform, which has never been popular. And I, you know, know a lot of Republicans, a lot of uh, never Trumpers, I guess you would have to call them, who were true believers in that brand of economic philosophy and who were quite disillusioned to see Trump take over their party by highlighting the culture war and promising old people he wouldn't take away their benefits. But I think it is still a mixed bag in terms of what the Republican Party is actually doing because, I mean, the trade war is a great example, right? You have the Trump administration betraying every tenet of conservative free market philosophy by imposing all of these tariffs, which you would think would make someone like a Larry Kudlow, who's always been against tariffs and against protectionism, you'd think it would uh, lead him to have a little trepidation. But instead, you have this kind of really strange contortionist act going on where Republicans embrace the tariffs because supposedly they're going to lead to not tariffs. Right. So and I wrote a profile a couple months ago of, of Peter Navarro, Trump's advisor, who's behind a lot of this tariff policy. I called him uh, the Stephen Miller of economic policy. And he's the one who's the real outlier and who would not be welcome in these sort of conservative economic circles. But at the same time, you have people like Kudlow and Steve Moore and the traditional economic conservatives still on the boat with Trump saying, well, look, I know I know it looks like he's doing exactly what I would have said he shouldn't do, but it's actually – he told me it's just a means to an end. And what he's actually doing is trying to put pressure on the Chinese so that eventually we can drop all the tariffs. Reporting on this, I don't think that's what's actually happening and I don't think that's actually what Trump and, and Peter Navarro believe. But that is an instance where uh, you have the old Republican establishment struggling to hang on to its beliefs while at the same time watching Trump contravene them. And, you know, they, they don't like that, but they've found a way to convince themselves that it's basically not actually happening. That I think is actually a really helpful thought for me because maybe this is what I'm trying to get at with, with Ryanism and it afflicts Trumpism too. Although uh, I do think the free trade space is a little bit of an interesting outlier there for some of the reasons you discuss. What seems to me to be happening in the Republican Party is that over the past, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, you've had a couple real efforts to try to forge a new synthesis in the policy approach. One of those efforts was Ryanism. And Ryanism was a kind of Tea Party-inflected reaction to the Bush years, right? The Bush years, out-of-control spending, too much big government. You know, so Ryan was going to be this return to, um, you know, balancing budgets and deficits is the most important thing. And one of the reasons people like me began taking Ryan seriously early on was he was espousing after the free lunch economics of George W. Bush a conservatism of real trade-offs that you weren't hearing that often. I mean he had 
Medicare plans and spending plans and, and, and all kinds of different plans that, you know, people were going to have to hurt in order for conservatism to get what it wanted. And at least making clear what that agenda was, was, was sort of valuable. Trumpism, I think you could almost understand as a reaction to Ryanism. It comes out, you know, I'm not going to touch Social Security, not going to touch Medicare, not going to touch Medicaid, going to give everybody health care, going to raise taxes on rich people, like the whole thing. And What's interesting to me about both of them is that for the most part in the kind of important healthcare, taxes, economy, like that, that, that zone, they both just fall back not on their synthesis or some kind of new fusion but just on the thing it already was, the thing it had been before them, which is basically Republicans can agree on cutting taxes for corporations and wealthier Americans. But they don't really want to do anything about the deficit. They don't have any real new ideas on health care. They, they just like – they don't have much. Um, Trump has had – he's cared enough about immigration and free trade to push his ideas there. But the way in which the Republican parties become very stagnant in some of these really core areas, even as different players within the party have seemed to raise an alarm over, over a number of years. You had this whole period um, after 2012 when Ryan and Rubio and others were starting to try to talk about poverty and the EITC. And then it all just kind of went away. And it just seemed that whatever was that core set of interests and, and coalitions that was holding republicanism together prior was just still the only thing you could really rely on now. And that seems to me to be really hurting the party. The fact that they have a pretty unpopular core agenda, but for whatever reason, and now from a number of different directions, that agenda does not seem actually reformable. Paul Ryan was not able to steer a new direction, and we can argue whether or not he even actually in the end wanted to. Donald Trump in a lot of cases, certainly in the core um, social safety net stuff, was not able to steer a new direction and again like does not seem to have cared that much about doing so. That to me is interesting. It's a it's a party that is very resistant to a reform of its core kind of economic and healthcare and like bread and butter issue ideas, even though its people seem to know reform is necessary and it keeps serving up like new stars and aspirants who are who are rising on some kind of critique of the of the established orthodoxy. There's a lot there. I think it's hard to talk about the Republican Party as a uh single entity as long as Trump is around. Trump is, such a, <laughs> Trump is such a, a different creature, as you note, and he is so disengaged on most policies with the exception, I think, of immigration and trade. So he's not the kind of leader we're accustomed to, a president who does have a clearly articulated set of ideological uh, lodestars, who wants to lead his party in a particular direction. Instead, on everything except immigration and trade, what Trump tends to do is promise contradictory things and then not do either of them, right? So he tells the Republican base or he tells, he tells voters that he's going to do universal health care at the same time as he's also saying he's going to repeal Obamacare. People hear whatever they want to hear. And then, surprise, surprise, it becomes absolutely paralyzing when he actually has control of the government uh, because he can't fulfill both promises at once. And you have a party that isn't quite sure what the political signal is. And so, and I think going back to Paul Ryan, so much of Ryan's appeal was a political appeal, right? It was that he was the, the fresh new face of the party, the literal blue-eyed boy, the one of the young guns. And so part of the pitch that you're talking about was, you know, ever since Reagan, the Republicans had been searching for a new platform with anti-communism no longer available. And so part of the promise of Ryan was that he was this man of ideas who would 
help the party be politically successful. And it's the same impulse embodied in the now notorious uh, post-2012 Republican autopsy report, which was all about how they had to win back young people and uh, minorities in order to be a politically viable party. Trump comes along, does the opposite of that and wins and gets at least as much of the Hispanic vote, if not a little bit more than Mitt Romney. And so I think part of the angst in the Republican Party is feeling like they don't know their own voters, feeling like if this guy could come in and win a Republican primary against all of the party's brightest stars, that he must know something that they don't. So even when he does something like, you know, go off the deep end talking about birthright citizenship and putting out an explicitly racist ad on the eve of the midterms, there's a part of, I think, the old party establishment that says maybe he knows something we don't. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves? From surveillance to social media, reproductive rights to criminal justice reform. Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. You just did a a great profile of Michael Avenatti. And something I was thinking about watching him rise up was... So Bernie Sanders mounted this much stronger than expected challenge to Hillary Clinton in 2016, you know, really came pretty close to winning that primary. And, you know, Democratic elites had not expected that at all. And then the rise of Avenatti, it made me wonder, is the Democratic Party more robust to the kind of forces that allowed an outsider like Trump to take it over than the Republican Party? Or is it just lagging five, six, seven, eight years behind the Republican Party? But because of changes in communication technology and the country and other things, that the same forces are going to afflict it too. I wonder if having done that profile and and observing it, if you have a view on that. Well, we have yet to see whether Avenatti actually runs and how much traction he actually gets. But he certainly is someone that the grassroots of the Democratic Party, at least a certain segment, seems to adore at the same time as a lot of the party establishment is a little bit leery. So in that sense, he resembles Trump. Look, the the parties are not symmetrical, and I fully expect the Democrats to have a different dynamic than the Republicans. But one thing that they do have in common in terms of trajectory is that part of what helped structurally Trump to succeed in 2016 and winning the party's primary was that they had dramatically empowered the grassroots of the party versus the party establishment. So a lot of structural changes that were made to the nominating process made it easier for an anti-establishment candidate to get through. 
uh, didn't get a lot of publicity, but recently Democrats took some steps in that same direction. They took a lot of power away from the infamous superdelegates and put it back into the hands of the Democratic grassroots. So if it does turn out that the Democratic grassroots can be ginned up by an exciting but inflammatory figure against the will of the party elders, you know, a lot of why Hillary Clinton was able to pull it out in the end was that the Democratic establishment won. She did have the majority of delegates. She didn't need the superdelegates to win. I don't want to get back into that whole thing and start arguing with the Bernie Bros. But when you have a weakening of the establishment in favor of the grassroots, you get a more democratic result and you also get a result that can be more open to populist appeals, I guess you would say. I do wonder about how much this is really rules and how much this is, I don't know, communication technologies, other things. Because the thing about superdelegates to me was that it never seemed plausible to me that they were actually going to throw the election. That they were there, they were a check. But in the same way that the Electoral College is meant to be a check to keep somebody like Donald Trump from getting into office, but has just become a kind of strange distortion on the popular vote rules that works a little bit by um, giving small states more power. Similarly, superdelegates, I think, in the end, were pretty bound by what the party itself decided. There's a weird way in, in American politics right now where – there are no political outcomes that have legitimacy except for those that get defined as small d democratic. But by the same token, we have a lot of non-democratic outcomes that nobody wants to do the work to change. And so you have a lot of systems that seem to me to be somewhere in between the two poles. They, On the one hand, they're not quite democratic. But on the other hand, the checks that are supposed to, to be useful in them can't operate in the way they're meant to because to do something that violates um, small-day democratic norms is not ideologically something you can sell today. Like again, if, if the Electoral College had met and said, you know what, we, we hear you, we know you voted uh, at least at the Electoral College level for Donald Trump, but we just don't think he's a he's a plausible president. We don't think he's the right guy. We're gonna we're gonna do someone else. Like it would never be permitted. And similarly, the superdelegates wouldn't either. And I think people underestimate the degree to which the system was protected from outsider candidates or insulated from them is maybe the better word by party conventions. I mean, it's been relatively recently in the 1970s roughly that you've had these much more open primary systems. And so the idea that just kind of year by year as the concept takes hold that they should be small d democratic, the, that all the checks are kind of coming down. And so both parties are becoming much more permeable to, to outsider candidates and to kind of viral candidates and, and, and to other kinds of people who would have been stopped by some of these elite checks at another point. That's why I often think it might be structural. It's like this mixture of kind of a, a, a democratic ideology with a slow-running small-day democratic revolution mixed with some very weird and distortive electoral mechanisms that, you know, it seems to me it's going to affect the Democrats eventually too. I want to go back to one line in what you just said that kind of struck me. You said, had the Electoral College gotten together and decided to overthrow the, the voters in their respective states, it wouldn't have been permitted. Well, what wouldn't have permitted it? Would it have just provoked an outcry and they would have just felt bad about it and not and then decided not to do it? Is it that people would have taken to the streets bearing arms or pitchforks or whatever and actually threatened violence to overthrow that result? Is it that they would have been taken to court and the institution of the courts would have served as a check on these potentially lawless electors? I think because we have a situation today where 
things that are merely normative have been challenged a lot, and we're seeing whether or not there are institutions to back them up. So Trump does something that previous presidents wouldn't have done because it violates a, a democratic norm, but is there actually an institution to hold him accountable for that. There hasn't been. Uh, the possible exception of the courts, right? There's still a lot of legal avenues through which Trump is being challenged. So this is a sort of perpendicular to your point, perhaps. But I do wonder about the assumptions we make about what is and isn't allowed, because those are basically just just the norms that we've internalized. And as we've seen, those norms are very vulnerable. I, I think that's a great point. I mean, it's worth trying to run it out, I guess. I mean, what would have happened if the Electoral College, you can imagine it running two ways, right? You can imagine them saying, Mike Pence is the president now. And presumably, I mean, you, assuming Mike Pence is willing to accept that, right? And he doesn't just say, well, okay, I'm making Donald Trump my vice president and resigning and Donald Trump is saying, you know, like you could imagine weird things happening. But I think this is a similar question with, say, a 25th Amendment strategy. What if Donald Trump's cabinet got together and ousted Donald Trump? And I don't know if people would take to the streets in violence, but I also don't know that they wouldn't. Well, think about Florida. Think about the recounts happening in Florida right now, right? The normal thing that politicians are supposed to do is encourage people to calm down and tell them that everything is proceeding according to normal processes and cooler heads will prevail and, you know, trying to bring people together, basically. And now you have a president who is spreading falsehoods and conspiracy theories about an attempt to steal an election for which there's absolutely no evidence and encouraging people to feel that if they don't win an election, it will have been stolen from them. And so I think no matter which side ends up being declared the winner in these Florida races, the other side is going to feel that the process was not legitimate. And Absolutely. that is the danger of a rhetoric that delegitimizes the political process is that when you undermine people's confidence in the political process, they may seek other ways to impose their will. This is one of my big obsessions right now, which is I think the system is fundamentally unstable. I think that you have a undemocratic tilt that is now sort of all aligned in one party direction, in one partisan direction. So you have a pretty significant democratic disadvantage at the House level, even though they won the House. You know, they couldn't have won the House just by winning three points um, of the national House vote. They had to win like six or seven or eight. You have a pretty big democratic disadvantage in the Senate and you've had, you know, two of the last five presidential elections won by a Republican who lost the popular vote. And I think if you look at demographic patterns, this can get worse rather than better. I think it's pretty easy to imagine, you know, you could have five presidential elections where Republicans win the Electoral College four of five times without winning the popular vote. You could have, you know, Democrats totally locked out at the Senate level because of how population patterns go. And I think the thing that people underrate, I don't know how to think about the threat of violence. I think that's a really it's just hard to know. Things that's something that doesn't happen until it happens and then it can happen very fast. But I think we're two or three or four bad outcomes away from the system falling into genuine crisis. And I think you see bits of it burbling around the edges. I mean, I think Donald Trump, who made clear in 2016, if he lost the election, he would say it was rigged and is now doing that around Florida, I think is an example of that. I think the sort of rise in democratic interest in things like court packing is an example of that. I think that you can see around the system how if things go bad, historians are going to write a pretty clear narrative about how that tension was building and then it erupted. And so on the one hand, you may well be right that you know we're – 
you know, society does not want a lot of tumult. It does not want a lot of upheaval. People would complain around, you know, the Electoral College moving an election out of the hands of the person who won it, at least under our current norms, and giving it to someone else. But on the other, you know, given rises in political violence, given some of the things we're seeing around, I don't know. Like, I, I think we often have too little tragic imagination around these things. And I think that the possibility that a couple more outcomes in a row that feel illegitimate could lead to something going really wrong is is not that low. It's low because we have a kind of national mythology of ourselves as Americans where that's not a thing that happens here. But a lot of the things that are happening here lately are not supposed to be the things that happen here. So my level of confidence that we are immune from the kinds of tumult that afflict other countries reasonably regularly has gotten a lot lower than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, I I don't know what to say to any of that. I don't know where any of this is headed. I think you could make an alternate case here just to play devil's advocate that that the system has shown that it works because under the Constitution, the remedy for a president or a party or a, or a Congress doing things you don't like is political and the, and the voters spoke and they elected the other party to serve as a check on the ruling party that was doing a lot of things they didn't like. And that's the way the process is supposed to work, at least in the top line. So I think the bigger question that you've hit on is just how much of a crisis do Americans think they're in, right? Because one of the things that I took away from 2016 was that there was a much greater appetite for radicalism in the electorate than I had thought, that rather than this sort of country full of generally sort of complacent and not particularly political people, there was this desire for extreme solutions to extreme problems. And so if it is the case that people are that riled up, but but a lot of what you hear about as you travel around the country talking to regular voters, even those who are politically engaged, is a feeling that this is all within the range of partisan combat, that it doesn't necessarily feel like a national emergency. So I don't know. And it, and it obviously doesn't take a majority of the population to do something extreme. But I don't really know what is sort of in America's heart right now in that vein. One of the counterfactuals I've wondered about a lot is what would have been the reaction if Democrats had won the House popular vote by four to five percentage points? But because of gerrymandering and geography, not won the House back. That they'd gotten a pretty big win, but not enough to get a majority. And they lost some ground in the Senate because of the way the map looked. I saw the way Democrats were talking right before it. And I thought, there's a lot of steam building up here. And I don't know that people are ready for it to come out. And now we didn't have that. And I think actually for the system, luckily, we didn't have that on a variety of levels. But it's like... Imagine everything went the same except for that. Imagine that, you know, Democrats won by five. They, you know, remained at a four-seat deficit in the House. And the next day, Donald Trump fired Jeff Sessions. The protect Mueller protests that had been planned in the event of Donald Trump firing Jeff Sessions were, you know, they were significant, but they were smaller than people expected given, I think, the context in which they happened, which is Democrats feeling a lot better because they had just taken control of the House. But imagine what they would have looked like then. And I don't know, like I'm not saying everything would have collapsed into violence, but I don't know. Like I don't know if you got into a situation, for instance, where Democrats felt they couldn't win back power under reasonable circumstances, how they would react. Like I think the stakes are just getting very high. I saw this a little bit after Kavanaugh. I think the stakes are getting really high. 
and the system feels pretty unfair and the things that could be done to make it more fair would feel now unfair to the other side. And that's a, a little bit of a, a difficult space to be in. Now, I think you're right. For most people, they're not that engaged with politics and you know, it's, all, it's all just politics. It's all just partisan fighting. But problems don't come from the middle. They come from the fringe. They come from the edges. And, you know, things kind of spark and then they take power, right? If like Donald Trump, like you could so easily imagine something happening that's a a more significant riot. And how quickly would Donald Trump overreact to something like that and treat it with real force? I think pretty quickly. And so I don't mean to be like painting sort of super apocalyptic fan fiction. I just think that one of the lessons I've taken from the past decade is don't underrate tail risk. Don't assume that the things that seem somewhat logical and seem like they happen elsewhere, but just haven't happened here recently, can't happen. And I don't know, like I've, I've just moved into a, a space of much more concern that a system, a political system I always felt was pretty stable, uh, is no longer so. Yeah. Well, whether America's on the brink of civil war uh, remains to be seen. Thank you very much. <laughs> have a nice day, everybody. But go back to what I said before, which is that, you know, you did have a result of the 2016 election that did not reflect the popular democratic will and that a lot of people therefore saw as illegitimate and a lot of people did take to the streets. But instead of a massive uprising, what they did was essentially political organizing. And that had a big effect and that and that helped Democrats win the House. I think the Democratic establishment probably ran a good campaign this time around, but it was the groundswell from the grassroots that really powered them to these wins. And so that was a whole lot of people who went to a protest, uh, maybe even thought about breaking a window, but in the end, what they saw as their avenue, despite all of the potentially undemocratic uh, features of the system, they still saw as their avenue for getting their voice heard, going and voting. And that is a healthy democracy where people do see the political process as legitimate enough that participation in it is the way that they can express the the outcome that they want. I think that is a good, upbeat place to end rather than my descent into apocalyptic fear-mongering. So (laughs) Molly Ball, as always, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great being here. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Molly Ball for being here, to all of you for being here. Please give the show a rating on iTunes or wherever you do your show rating. Uh, if you're enjoying it, it helps us get discovered. It helps other people see us. I am always very grateful when you take the time to do it. It means a lot to me. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner, and the Ezra Klein Show will be back in just a couple of days. No, it's not smart. I had something not smart just happen to me. I had misread the date of my train. So I showed up at the train station and there was no train for me because I am bad at booking travel. You know what is smart? Using ZipRecruiter to find qualified candidates for your business. ZipRecruiter, it doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Their powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job. And then it actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. Then ZipRecruiter spotlights the top candidates for your job, so you never miss out on a great match. It's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., and that's based on a Trustpilot rating of only hiring sites with over a 1,000 reviews. So a lot of people are using this, a lot of people are loving it, and they're getting great talent out of it, which in the end is the only thing that really matters. Right now, my listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, 
more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.